In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Streets Ahead, your podcast dedicated to all things cycling, walking and wheeling in the UK and beyond. I'm Ned Bolting. I'm Laura Laker. I'm Adam Tranter. And this time we're discussing the budget and how while cycling and walking often see relatively little (coughs) in the way of funding at these times, they they actually offer very good returns on the investment of taxpayers' cash, hard-earned taxpayers' cash. While cycling and walking improvements generate low-carbon journeys that benefit health, air quality and congestion, roads tend to do the opposite. Despite decades of largesse, more, bigger and faster roads and cars have increased motor traffic and danger. Before we come to that, though, Laura, what have you been up to? Had COVID, got over it. That was happy. Been cycling a bit. Um, what else have I been doing? Writing your book? Oh, yeah, doing my book. Yes, I'm doing that every day now. Got Any words? Um, well, chapter two currently has 13,000 words, <laughs> which is a few too many words. It's quite long, yeah. Yeah, it's way too long. So I've kind of incorporated various things, which well, now... Hang on, who's chapter two all about? So it's a couple of uh, rides that I went on, and then I've started inserting the history of NCN into it. So, um, yeah, the kind of chapter one sets the scene. And then chapter two, I sort of do a ride, and then I get into history, and then, yeah... Yeah, it's quite a lot. I mean, it's obviously very different from writing an article. There's a lot of information. It's about when you bring it in. And so, yeah, I think it's going well. Just need to cut a lot out. Okay. Am I going to get cut? I might be in the book. Do you think I'm going to get cut? No, you're going to be in there. Yeah. 13,000 words, though. I don't know. 250 words about you, Ned, if you're lucky. Um, What about you, Ned? You've been everywhere. The stand-up show. So good. good. It was really, really good. It was really, really good. I really, really enjoyed it, Ned. Went to Leamington Spa. Richmond, the home of yeah. cycling. The home of cycling, yeah. The home, well, I said that wherever I went. Yeah. <laughs> I, just lied, I just lied to audiences all around the country, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite glad it's over because it involved me, well, as you now know, and that, now it's fine to be a spoiler, it involved me walking on the stage without any trousers on, yeah. which was an idea I had before I had any other ideas. When I started to get into a panic about what can I put in this show, 
And I thought, well, the, quite important that you make people laugh at the beginning. How do you make people laugh? No trousers. That's normally how you make people laugh. So for a long time, that was the only idea I had. And then I was kind of like wedded to it and then I couldn't get out of it. So it's like, yeah. Anyway, it's all over now. But thank you both for coming. That was much appreciated. What have you been up to? Um, saving the world or at least them? Well, uh, I went to Laser Quest, not really saving the world. And, you know, but with my son, that was, yeah, it was great fun. It hasn't changed at all since I did it when I was a kid. Quite incredible, really. What we've been doing, what I've been doing is what we're going to talk about now really the kind of budget conversation that there is it's a really important time with with active travel and in my commissioner role i've been looking at accelerating the stuff that we're doing the government's been talking about you know more delivery faster those kind of things but there's also probably quite a valid concern that there's going to be a drain on public finances and you know you have to to be pragmatic and get the right arguments across with this and it's not going to just be on passion alone and we have to remember that active travel delivers great returns and you know there's a whole debate at the moment around which services need to be kept ring fence protected if you like you know i've even heard some commentators ministers ex-ministers saying that oh no active travel is a luxury it's a nice to have and we have to kind of battle that so you know, I think it's worth looking at this whole topic of how we talk about active travel, how we calculate whether it's a good thing to do, how people perceive it, because this stuff really matters. And without funding, you don't have active travel. So convince me, I am a new transport minister. You've got five minutes of my precious time. Yeah. And I'm thinking I'm under enormous pressure from my constituents and from various lobbying groups to invest everything that I've got in the rail and the road, and particularly the road building at the moment, because that's the beating heart of our economy, isn't it? So that's what I'm going to focus on. But why should I not? You know, why should I? What should well, I the first thing I'd say is, why aren't you wearing any trousers? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I think, honestly, this conversation I have had over letters over the last couple of weeks. And, you know, we've had a couple of governments as well. So we've had to had to change the tack a little bit and and you'll have heard with Liz Truss there was a lot of conversation around road building we heard that a lot in her speeches you know we're gonna build roads we're gonna yeah and, and that's kind of quite a traditional view of infrastructure building and and the, the economic return but it is all stated you know slated against this potential economic return and we see that time and time again actually that it's an uncomfortable truth it never quite works out how it should so there's a study a couple of years ago actually on the m25 you know the the business case for road building road widening like on the m25 basically comes down to relieving congestion improving journey times so what they did is they built an extra lane on the m25 and because they built an extra lane it became more popular and the journey times lasted improvements lasted for about a year and then went back to what they were again um obviously several 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 millions of pounds later so we we know that this happens but it is quite an abstract conversation to kind of understand and, and get your head around so you know i think a lot of people do just take it as a given that if you build big roads then you get you get the kind of benefits and and obviously you're you've got economic activity coming from from the connections and from the building it's itself but I think we need to, you know, not play the, the play at the same game, but active travel is going to really deliver proper green growth. So what I'd be saying to the to the Secretary of State and to ministers is active travel can be implemented really, really quickly in a one to you know two to three year 
time frame way quicker than road building with much higher benefit cost ratios and you get all the health benefits with the nhs as well there's a lot of conversation in the media at the moment around people who are often long-term sick and obviously some of those people you know rightly won't be able to to work or or be um you know as economically uh, productive but we also know that active travel can be a huge preventative measure in the nation's health in public health and that's been that's been shown in countries that have really prioritized active travel so we need to talk a slightly different language i think when it comes to um when it comes to active travel and it's so often been about net zero or health on its own but really there's there's quite a strong economic case which hasn't really been made very well before and is starting to be made uh, now can i ask a devil's advocate question about that whole widening the m25 thing and then it fills up which is a, a kind of an argument that you quite often hear from people yeah. like you do good do gooding people like you on that side <laughs> no but i often hear it and i kind of nod along as if yes that's what that's my experience of kind of witnessing that but i suppose the other side to that might be if they hadn't widens the m25 wouldn't i mean a similar number of people would have acquired vehicles and carried on buying cars that that, you know and the congestion would have been worse well i think it's interesting because what happens is you actually build better infrastructure regardless whether that's a road or you know the elizabeth line or something like that and guess what people go and use it so that's a good thing but what you actually have found with the m25 is that people that weren't using it before are now using it because potentially because of instead of local roads to do the you know, jump at one junction to, to do the school run, etc., to bypass a congested single track, single road, dual carriageways, things like that. And um, that means that more people are going to be using the, the infrastructure. I mean, it's not the kind of infrastructure that we know that we need lots of people using for things like decarbonisation, etc. And we know in places like, well... Uh, South Korea, for example, that when they actually took lanes away or got rid of quite big infrastructure, the traffic actually decreases. So you have what's called traffic evaporation. And that's really abstract. You know, people don't quite understand that if you actually give less road space, less people will use it and more people will be inclined to use the alternatives which are more convenient. And, you know, that's hard to get your head around. It's hard to say to people, we don't want you to use this. You know, that that goes against the grain of growth of all, at all costs but the great thing about active travel i think is we're not saying to people don't you know don't engage with society stay at home or, or whatever we're, we're we're saying that actually for a lot of the and this comes into land use planning as well a lot of the stuff that you might do you know go to the pub go for dinner see your friends go to work etc take kids to school could be done in a, a smaller radius and could be done via sustainable transport if we start to build the the space for it and i think one of the problems is with our focus in over the last couple of decades on or few decades i should say on road building we've kind of done that at the expense of other modes of transport and kind of leaving road transport as the only option for people so bus services have been cut and then uh, there's been very few cycle lanes and so there aren't that many options for people other than to drive and so the roads are kind of filling up because actually the in terms of length of road there haven't been a huge sort of length of new road in the last decade or so but there's been a huge growth of traffic something like 28 billion miles between 2009 and 2019 and um what shocked me 
was that um, apparently government's expecting a further increase of up to 51% in road traffic by 2050. If you set that against our net zero goals, which is to cut road traffic by a quarter by 2030, so that's what sort of getting on for seven years away, those two numbers are obviously in direct opposition, but there's still a huge problem of um, what they call predict and provide. It's that this assumption that road traffic's always going to grow, and so you always keep growing the road network and improving it, and a lot of the work that we do around roads is just increasing the speed at which traffic can move through it so it's just sort of smoothing corners increasing width and stuff but yeah the kind of the way that we're going is just the way that we've always gone I guess and it's just it's yeah it's it's leading entirely in the wrong direction well yeah I think there's there's a level of inevitability about it you know I was listening to a commons debate at nine o'clock last night because well that's what i do and there was talking about low traffic neighborhoods and one of the examples up in the northwest you know they were talking about the air pollution they get from the big roads that they have there you know there's that corridor where all the motorways converge and they were sort of saying well we get a lot of air pollution from that and the logic was you know with the main roads around there is that if you block the block any of the roads off the traffic has to go somewhere and that kind of infers that traffic behaves more like water where you know it has to go somewhere whereas the evidence seems to show that that traffic is more like a a gas and it can actually evaporate when you give it less space so there's all this inevitability that i find especially around low traffic neighborhoods where you cannot do anything to impede the flow of motor traffic and that's just quite fatalistic because all the kind of local transport plans you know i was in the west midlands talks about a near 30% reduction in in car mileage so we can't just go with that you know that typical predict and provide the law talks about you know I think we've got to move it on and, and actually some of our engineers are talking about sort of decide and provide and being in charge of our own destiny so yeah there's a lot of fatalism about about this kind of thing where cars are going to be around and Therefore, we have to not do anything to impede them because that might cause congestion or pollution from people waiting around. But, you know, it's going to be that stat that we refer to, you know, 51% increase in traffic potentially by 2050. That's the government's own predictions. Uh, You know, where's it all going to go? Yeah, it's interesting what's happening in um, Coventry. I, I kind of quite like seeing these bike lanes uh, coming popping up in your area. But it's, I mean, it seems like stuff's happening there. And you've, we've only been there, what, less than a year? Yeah, well, no, less than a year. Yeah, the council's been doing the lion's share of the delivery, mm. so I wouldn't want to take credit for that. But definitely feel like there's a sense of purpose and the politicians, you know, are really supportive. And I think one of the main things is that, you know, the politicians aren't, just getting shouted about like they did with you know my bins haven't been emptied or or whatever it is people are going well actually now I can cycle to school with my kids so you know thank you and it really makes a real impact on me and and I you know I sense that the politicians are sort of you know getting a lot from from that and you know starting to see the quick benefits of people and the amount of people engaging with the infrastructure as they're, they're building is they're like you know great let's go and do some more and and there is some funding for active travel i mean you've got a bunch of it haven't you well, yeah there's loads of it the thing to differentiate with the kind of upcoming budget is well we've had funding as a nation and we've had funding as a region in the west midlands we've had more funding as a nation than we've ever had and we've had more funding in the West Midlands than we've ever had for active travel. So, you know, if you've got ambition and you've got, you know, the will to do this, you're largely been rewarded by by the government. I think the concern is, is with the budget, we're getting to the point where 
we need a multi-year settlement to really do this properly. So often we only get budgets for active travel year on year. You have to bid for it. And you can then only put people on like fixed term contracts for less than 12 months. So you're not getting the kind of skills growth, job growth, continuity, network planning that you need. You're, you're waiting year on year to see what you can do. So a multi-year settlement is going to be really, really important. And, you know, it's what they do for uh, like other stuff like road and rail. You know, they have long term funding streams or longer term funding streams, at least. And these three-year settlements could be really transformational. So we, you know, we definitely need them, and we need that longevity. How does that work, Adam? So I don't uh, with, but I mean, this isn't technically a budget, is it? Well, uh, it's an autumn statement, so they can, you know, I guess do. Yeah, they can announce stuff. They can cut stuff. Uh, they can change the budgets. What they might do, just say, is you know, they might say, well, inflation's at ten or eleven percent we're not going to increase our levels of spending with with inflation so that might mean you know well all projects are ongoing now might have to be shorter or find money from somewhere else and that would be a a challenge in itself yeah so but if you were to get out of this a three-year settlement from central government that takes you into the first year of a new potentially a new government doesn't it post the general election so it's kind of like built-in instability, isn't it? In terms of, so presumably, if there were to be a change of government completely, if the Labour Party were to come in, which is, according to the polls, quite likely at the moment, they might, I have no idea what their active travel policy might look like, but they might come in and say, we'll increase it or even we'll cut it. And then are they bound by any three-year commitment? I mean, yeah, there's always a way to get out. But if someone gives you a longer-term commitment in general, all that means you can budget, you have the security to, to do that. So, you know, you don't often see people pull from there but yeah i guess the thing that people is more you know the 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 fact that people well some people complain about this we've done actually quite well out of this but it's the sort of beauty parade that you have to do with competitive bidding so you know you might if you want to access this fund you have to put a presentation and often it's you know 20 or thirty thousand words and you just sort of get a yes or a no at the end of it so as i say i think we've done quite well out of it but the long-term security and stability that comes from having a dedicated longer-term budget is is you know can't be underestimated. It's really really important. Three years sounds like a, a long way off, but uh, it will come up quick, I'm sure. You know, I think the the bit where we're at now is that most of the political parties, mainstream political parties, really understand that active travel is a thing, and you know they're not dubious about it. So. I think regardless of what happens in politics, you know, active travel is being taken seriously and. You know, that shouldn't underestimate that actually. Because yeah, like when we started the podcast here, it was sort of we now had a dedicated active travel fund, you know, back in 2020, not that long ago. And now it definitely feels and now it feels part of the landscape. Yeah, that long term stability can be super important, not just for the West Midlands, but I think uh, local authorities across the country would all pretty much say the same things. And one of the ways to get that, I think, is to really get across the return on investment. So going back to, you know, saying for the transport secretary, I was saying for, you know, for every one pound invested in cycle lanes, you know, return on average between five and six pounds. And, you know, in those wider economic and health benefits, etc. And that's even in a system that is sort of, you know, rigged uh, against sustainable transport. You know, we still play place a huge value in these calculations on car drivers and their time and you know people in cars are, are have a higher value than people on public transport for example and productivity which is sort of a bit odd um 
but we have a very, very high return on investment and we can do this very, very quickly. So I think that's what we should be focusing on rather than seeing it as a as a luxury mm-hmm. yeah that um the the whole thing about um kind of valuing car drivers time so highly i part of that is because of um i guess they're sort of contributing car tax at the moment vehicle excise duty and with electric cars coming in that's going to be less of a less of a because we make a huge kind of hole in the government's revenue isn't it and there was talk maybe i think the government was talking about um putting vehicle excise duty onto electric cars to try and plug the gap. But um, yeah, so I wonder if that's going to change as fossil fuel cars, petrol and diesel cars are kind of uh, phased out and electric cars come in. But um, who knows? The kind of economic value thing's quite interesting, isn't it? Because it is so high and it's still undervalued. But Sustrans estimated it was something like 36 billion in in sort of economic benefits in 2021. To active travel. Yeah. Yeah, and walking, yeah. Um, which, you know, is substantial. There was a work five years ago as well in the Bicycle Association showing that the British cycling industry was worth more than the British steel industry, which was uh, sort of surprising. Yeah, but on the other hand... I wrote a book about football last year and I calculated that Manchester City or Manchester United, I can't remember, had signed a left back who was worth more than the British steel industry. <laughs> Literally. So the British steel industry is pretty small beer. But nonetheless, I think it's a yeah. substantial amount. <laughs> 36 billion? It's either tenuous or absolutely accurate. Well, yeah, you know, I wasn't, yeah, I was just sounded good. But, well, they're not here to give us a methodology, but I would say... Well, someone told me that the, the Sustrans data also included people buying shoes if they're walking, which feels a little bit tenuous. They do wear out, though. The more you walk, the faster they go. And if you're talking about thousands of miles of walking network. True, but it's not quite like bike sales, though. It's not as clear cut as that. Yeah, these things are always kind of arbitrary, I guess, aren't they? So, yeah, if you kind of extrapolate them. Uh, I think we've got to talk about efficiency as well, because no one is having the conversation we mentioned uh, mentioned earlier, which is, you know, car traffic could increase by as much as 51%. I know, that's Where's astonishing. It going to go? It's definitely, you know, it, it, no one knows. And I think that's untenable for a lot of local politicians, which uh, who are very concerned about, you know, the, the, the popular vote. And yes, on a micro level of thinking to the next election it's yeah it might be about the traffic management that's going on outside their roads and and in their cities and towns and villages but really on a long term no one's going to tolerate this level of traffic increase that's been in tract because you know people won't even be able to get out of their front front drive or out of their road um yeah and it's all wear and tear on the roads because they're heavier i was speaking to some people um who live in they were in amsterdam and they're now in arnhem and um they were saying you know They've moved out of Amsterdam to the countryside and they they were used to sort of having to walk in Amsterdam two or three, maybe four blocks to get their car and to park it. And that was just totally normal for them. And they're laughing because they've moved to this village where everyone's quite sort of, well, it's a, it's a town, where everyone's quite sort of parochial about their car park spot, apparently. <laughs> They left their car in someone else's unofficial spot. But I, I, I thought it was quite funny that even there they, they had that problem. But um, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's just a very different kind of landscape isn't it that we have we just kind of expect to be able to you know wherever we live to be able to like put our car outside our house and and just having that kind of distance I think is also a cost that you factor in when you're deciding whether you decide to take the bike yeah I mean it's only really when people are financially disincentivized to make the right decision that they they do and we haven't really incentivized the right the right option 
right options for for people and and you know electric cars are fairly cheap to to run and you know i've got a very small access to a very small renault zoe um but it's effectively still you know it's a car and the back seats are effectively a sofa on wheels and the average car occupancy is is 1.2 people so in terms of road space efficiency it's not helpful so we need to do talk about efficiency and incentivizing that efficiency and if we somehow build policy that incentivizes using electric cars for short journeys because it's cheap well that's just going to be a problem just from a physics and spatial point how of much view, is a bag tax 5p the cut ta- yeah. plastic bags enormously it's quite amazing well, if you had to pay a pound to unlock your car like you do with a scooter i think people might <laughs> might rethink how they uh how often they use it for short journeys. Ned, when you're thinking about explaining the benefits, you know, about yeah. travel, I know that you, you mentioned before that your partner works in the NHS. It, you, know, you talk about health benefits and all of those things, but it strikes me that in the active travel lobby hasn't really had much of a conversation about the economic benefits of active travel. So I, I just wondered, is it something you've ever considered when you're kind of explaining the, the benefits of, you know, oh, would it benefit my high street? This stuff sounds like really obvious to me as a policy nerd, but I don't... I don't know if normal people ever read like <laughs> well, that. I'm here to represent the normal person. No, massively. I mean, it's one of them. Although there's one thing that, that um, strikes me: that bikes aren't free. You know, they're not free. They're not free to. They're, they're not free to buy, and they're not actually free to maintain. There is a certain cost attached, but it is tiny compared to everything else. But there is some sort of like myth out there that somehow that once you've got a bike, that's it. It's kind of free for the rest of you. It's not. <laughs> you know, but bits of bikes are quite expensive. Tires are forty quid a pop, aren't they? Yeah. Sort of, the, 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 you know, and they're getting more expensive as everything as everything is. Yes, and I do. I was going to ask about the kind of. Oh, I was going to turn it. I had a question for you, but they're not unrelated. We are now, I think, heading into a. Well, the experts predict quite prolonged, possibly the longest ever recession on record in this country and the last quarter returned a shrinking GDP didn't it so it looks like it started clearly we don't want to get onto austerity we kind of did that in an earlier podcast too deeply but clearly people's disposable income is getting really squeezed or eliminated eradicated now and one of the most obvious and compelling answers and it's, com- it's you know it's very much the case in London isn't it that and I've just done it because I'm, I've just had a COVID booster so I'm not feeling great so I didn't cycle up to this um, the six six miles up to this um, podcast meeting. I actually jumped on a train for most of it and then got a hire bike from there. But I resented swiping my contactless card, partly because no one uses Oyster cards anymore, do they? Everyone just uses their contactless bank card most mostly, and it doesn't display the price. So it's always quite funny when you you know you tell people what you've just spent in a week if people are going in and out of town, you know, and it, often those costs are hidden. And when you extrapolate it over a month, oh, that's the biggest single gain, isn't it, in terms of the cost of living? What if if you live in a city. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's going to affect different people in different ways. So I think we talked about this on a previous podcast, but, you know, it, it, it not only just affects the decision between heating and eating, but also for people that, you know, are in work and maybe consider themselves as comfortable in most circumstances, they'll be looking at how much a train journey costs them or, you know, it costs me £100 or £150 a week to fill my car up and I don't really use it that much. And it's going to affect different people in different ways and i think we can say for sure it's going to have an effect on everybody and this recession is slightly you know i'm not i've got c in gcse maths i'm definitely not an economic expert but from what i've been hearing about and listening to to people analyzing this this recession is going to be quite you know it's quite different because there's a lot of people in work because you know it's got got a there's jobs for people but you know for a lot of people they're they're looking at their discretionary spend and if you're spending quite 
a significant amount of money on your transport and there was a you know there's a free or very low cost option available to you i think we're going to see a lot more people um yeah shifting i think so and I, again i think it's gen- generational as well because you know the cost of living crisis falls it falls differently on different parts of society but one of the one of the demographics that are hit the hardest is the younger people who are just entering the workforce and are in uh, aren't in a position to get big pay rises regularly and are you know really scrabbling around with rents that are going up so i think it'll be possibly an un, um, uh, an unfortunate set of circumstances that will result in a bit of behavioral change in that regard that will might well be there to stay because these things are habit forming and you know I live in Zone 2 in London, just on the fringe of Zone 2, and I think of it as a bottle of wine. Ride in, do it, go to a meeting, ride out, literally, that's a bottle of wine I've just saved there. So I tend to pick up a... So for that reason, I'll pick up a bottle of wine when I get home. <laughs> yeah. Spending in your local shop. Well, yeah, and there's actual real data that shows that people who walk and cycle generally visit the high street more Almost frequently. Almost twice as much as people. I think, yeah, pedestrians spend the most, or visit the most, yeah, then drivers the least, uh, or half as much as pedestrians, visiting shops half as much as pedestrians. But yeah, I think it's interesting because there was a story in The Guardian from uh, from Australia about a load of businesses that were um, opposing cycle new cycle lanes that had been installed in like Melbourne and Sydney. But I think a lot of the time, although cycle lanes are good for local high streets, as we well know, there's plenty of research around the world on that. But a lot of businesses don't seem to know that. And I think there's a kind of education piece for local businesses and local employers to kind of understand what the benefits are and how people get to where they are and what people like to do when they're there and what kind of draws people into a space. And it's not... And it's not a busy thoroughfare full of traffic. It was in debate last night you know i was listening and and they were saying oh well you know this is how people get their trade through through here and i was thinking that's really sort of old-fashioned isn't it so i used to work in a bike shop growing up and we were like at crossroads and traffic lights and been there for decades and and it's on a crossroads and we made a whole big deal about this passing trade but actually you know we didn't think about has this bike shop got good cycle parking or what happens if there are more cycle trips and or cycle infrastructure in yeah. town and how would that affect or actually the business? well yes cycle but even getting away from bicycles as you say pedestrians they're the big thing and they're going to, they're going to go they're going to go much more frequently much more readily much more happily to a, to an environment that isn't stinking and um and noisy do you remember the conversations we were having during the height of sort of covid when i i, I kind of hit upon this thought or, or i've felt this thought expressed this thought that um over and above the messaging coming from central government about social distancing, I thought that the corporations and specifically supermarkets were actually doing the heavy lifting. Yeah. They were telling us what to do and how to behave in a way that central government couldn't even begin to be as, uh, you spread that message as powerfully as Sainsbury's and Tesco's and the rest of them because they were our everyday experience. So even on, you know, my, uh, it's, I, I live near a classic London village, but my local local little parade of shops, is, they call it a village, don't they? Um, it's actually got a lot of traffic coming through it, but it's just... It's just got a, it's either Tesco's or Sainsbury's Express opening up for the first time, you know. And those big chains are kind of represented everywhere where you've got these actually small independent community uh, shops around them. They're typical little high street that you want to see rejuvenated, you know. That's absolutely classic, you know. That's what you want to see grow. But, and I wonder whether the big corporations, they're not daft. They, they know, they will have looked at this evidence. You know, they don't open a Tesco's Express or a Sainsbury's Express just simply on a whim, do they? They know, good, this will work, even though there's no, even though there's no parking anywhere near, yeah. Yeah. you know. So 
they could be a driver for spreading that kind of message around around the shops on which they rely as well because you know they need a dry cleaners and a barbers and a pizzeria you know and i wonder how significant their wealth of accrued kind of expertise in terms of understanding the economics of the high street might be yeah definitely and um i remember think this makes me think of um when the big bike lanes are being built by boris when he was london mayor there was that big campaign around lots of massive businesses in london supporting the east west cycle superhighway because there were some voices against yeah it was amazing actually they had some massive kind of I don't know ma- well, massive organizations corporations backing this yeah well I think Orange backed it didn't they the telecoms company and it was all because of the chair of the Canary Wharf group basically he hired PR and lobbying firms to go up against the cycle lane because well uh, when we looked at it it's exactly the the route that he used to get driven to work in allegedly <laughs> that's right yeah and um yeah because i mean because because these these companies and it's not just about um their customers it's also about kind of attracting staff so if, if a if a business can locate itself a nice pedestrianized area there's nice cafes it's like you know attracting a workforce especially today when we're short of kind of workers you know if you want to if you want to be competitive and get the right staff then you need to be based somewhere that's really prioritizing the pedestrian realm and younger people increasingly don't want to be surrounded by traffic they don't want to drive they don't want to be surrounded by it i heard a really interesting sorry this is quite a rambling discussion isn't it but i think it's quite interesting um i heard a really interesting discussion on the radio the other day about um i think it was on radio four about has the footfall come back to our town centers you know post working from home and their blended work hybrid working whatever it's called and you know there's there's evidence that it is returning to something like normal, but it's expressing itself potentially differently and there seems to be a kind of growing sense of body of evidence that actually footfall in shops and town centers are still markedly down on pre-pandemic levels bars and restaurants despite the credit you know the, the cost of living crisis are actually returning to something you know they're more popular than the shops and what is what's being noticed now is that at the weekends and i really noticed this touring the country on my theater tour for five weeks at the weekends city centers and town centers are bustling and perhaps even more so than before because a lot of people are doing sort of hybrid working and working from home still or maybe two three days a week or even five days a week from home and actually a nice town centre is a, is a nice thing to go and do with the family at the weekend to get you away from your, ho- your house that you've been essentially locked in for five, five days a week. I think that's quite an interesting phenomenon as well. Well, if you think about it as well, if you think about the close your eyes and what does that town centre look like? It's definitely, you know, probably pedestrianised. It's probably a place where you can sit outside and have a coffee. There might be some ambience of people talking or music in the background or whatever. It's definitely not. As some people might suggest, like a massive car park. Like no one wants to go to the city centre just to park their car and then, well, dodge other people's cars next to, <laughs> next to them. But you, know, you listen to some of the discussions. I mean, have you think that that's what people would would want? And it's just not what. It's very clear that's not when you close your eyes what people expect when they, you know, city centres have to. To, to thrive they have to um they have to be interesting and they have to to have places to dwell as well as just just visit from an economic standpoint i think that the thing that really gives me hope and reassures me is looking at the city of london you know they would say the world's you know financial center well well one of the world's financial centers or i thought we were well beating but no they would say that that they you know they've done lots of really really interesting things you know they haven't even got 20 zones they've actually got 15 mile an hour zones they've built 
parklets, they've closed roads, they've had junctions remodelled. You know, effectively, the City of London Corporation, it's not a council. And, you know, if the smartest and most financially savvy people in the world, in the country at least, are reshaping their streets to make it more economically viable and more attractive, then I think that's a that's a good thing and it's good to know that that others will probably learn from it and and take notes about what they're doing yeah and they have colossal numbers of pedestrians every day coming in i mean i guess presumably it's less since the pandemic but absolutely enormous numbers of people coming in that every day on foot and um it's and and that's really that's really interesting because i think you're absolutely right i've kind of noticed that as well it's and and over the last 10, maybe 10, 15 years has changed dramatically because on Saturdays and Sundays, the, the city used to be an absolute wasteland, didn't it? Yeah. Quite charming in a way, you wander around, but there's no one there. And now they seem to be quite, like, there's quite a lot of life at the weekends in those, in those places as well. Ned, obviously you went up and down the country on your tour. Really interested to hear which was your favourite bit for active travel urbanism and which was the most hostile, I guess. Maybe I can answer that. Um, both those questions by saying one word Worcester now I think because I was talking to Laura about this we maligned Worcester a long time ago Worcestershire we maligned and I can't quite remember why can you remember why we maligned them well so this is quite interesting they they had a cabinet that was you know still conservative um, held there but they had a particular kind of set of individuals who let's say would not basically give an inch on cycling on, on anything and they had these public space protection orders which ban cycling in the city centre they've also more recently not getting much money from the active travel fund so I don't expect you to have read possibly Ned a Conservative Home but Conservative Home has an article from Mike Rouse who's the new cabinet member at the council uh, for transport and he you know he's saying all the right things and and talking about their ambition and wanting to do the right thing so I, I don't know. I think they could be a dark horse of the active travel future. Well, here's here's the, here's what happened to me. So my wonderful tour manager, who Reese, who I travelled around with, who um, uh, in a van basically for five weeks, um, we were crisscrossing the country and up and down the M5 again. And I didn't actually do a show in Worcester, but we kept passing it. And Reese lives in Worcester. He's moved there. He's got a young family. And um, I, as we drove past Worcester for the first time, I went, "Wow, see Reese." I went, "See, see." Worcester's very much frowned upon in the active travel community. So you got a black mark here for, you know. And he, like, Reese is the most understated, gently intelligent person I've ever met, right? And he just let me sort of say my piece and then he was quiet for 30 seconds. And then he went, it's funny you say that because I, I go around where I live and just outside, just outside the, the city centre, quite a lot of lovely bike lanes. And I went, well, whatever. And then as we drove past Worcester, he, we, we drove underneath a, a brand new looking bridge that he just yeah, pointed at. He said, that, that, he said, that's just for cycle. That's just for bikes. And I went, really? And it was like, looked amazing. And then we drove on a little bit further. And then he just showed me this enormous new cycle lane that was like, and he goes, I go out with a kid all the time. We just, don't, we can go for miles on cycle lanes like that. And they go right past my house and I get everywhere. And I went, okay, so maybe I've, well, maybe we should go, uh, go back and set the record straight. Absolutely. That's a good idea. We should do that. We should do that. Invite ourselves around to Reese's house. Is that it? Are we done? All right, you've been listening to Streets Ahead. As ever, our editor has been Claire Mansell. Please let us know what you think at Pod Streets Ahead. Rate us and review us and share the podcast with anyone you think might enjoy it from Worcester. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.